0: section 10 of the oxford book of american essays chosen by brander matthews this librivox recording is in the public domain section 10 and it is not verse that this temporary check of order applies it is often said that prose fiction now occupies the place during the elizabethan age certainly this modern product shows something of the brilliant profusion of that wondrous flowering of genius but here the resemblance ends where in our imaginative literature does one find the concentrated utterance the intense and breathing life the triumphs and despairs the depth of emotion the tragedy the thrill that meet one everywhere in those elizabethan pages what impetus and commanding men are these what passionate women how they love and hate struggle and endure how they play with the world what a trail of fire they leave behind them as they pass by turn now to recent fiction dickens's people are amusing and lovable no doubt thackeray's are wicked and witty but how undersized they look and how they loiter on the mere surfaces of life compared i will not say with shakespeare's but even with chapman's and webster's men set aside hawthorne in america with perhaps charlotte bronte and george eliot in england and there would scarcely be a fact in prose literature to show that we modern anglo-saxons regard a profound human emotion as a thing worth the painting who now dares delineate a lover except with good-natured pitying sarcasm as in david copperfield or pendennis in the elizabethan period with all its unspeakable coarseness hot blood still ran in the veins of literature lovers burned and suffered and were men and what was true of love was true of all the passions of the human soul in this respect as in many others france has preserved more of the artistic tradition the common criticism however is that in modern french literature as in the elizabethan the play of feeling is too naked and obvious and that the puritan self-restraint is worth more than all that dissolute wealth i believe it and here comes in the intellectual worth of america puritanism was a phase a discipline a hygiene but we cannot remain always puritans the world needed that moral bracing even for its art but after all life is not impoverished by being ennobled and in a happier age with a larger faith we may again enrich ourselves with poetry and passion while wearing that heroic girdle still around us. Then the next blossoming of the world's imagination need not bear within itself, like all the others, the seeds of an epoch of decay. I utterly reject the position taken by Matthew Arnold that the Puritan spirit in America was essentially hostile to literature and art of course the forest pioneer cannot compose orchestral symphonies nor the founder of a state carves statues but the thoughtful and scholarly men who created the massachusetts colony brought with them the traditions of their universities and left these embodied in a college the puritan life was only historically inconsistent with culture there was no logical antagonism indeed, that life had in it much that was congenial to art, in its enthusiasm and its truthfulness. Take these Puritan traits, employ them in a more genial sphere, add intellectual training and a sunny faith, and you will have a soil suited to art above all others. To deny it is to see in art only something frivolous and insincere. The American writer in whom the artistic instinct was strongest came of unmixed Puritan stock. Major John hathorne in 1692, put his offenders on trial and generally convicted and hanged them all. Nathaniel Hawthorne held his more spiritual tribunal two centuries later, and his keener scrutiny found some ground of vindication for each one. The fidelity the thoroughness the conscientious purpose were the same in each both sought to rest their work as all art and all law must rest upon the absolute truth the writer kept no doubt something of the sombreness of the magistrate each doubtless suffered in the woes he studied and as the one had a knot of pain in his forehead all winter while meditating the doom of arthur dimsdale so may the other have borne upon his own brow the trace of martha corey's grief no it does not seem to me that the obstacle to a new birth of literature and art in america lies in the puritan tradition but rather in the timid and faithless spirit that lurks in the circles of culture and still holds something of literary and academic leadership in the homes of the puritans what are the ghosts of a myriad blue laws compared with the transplanted cynicism of one saturday review how can any noble literature germinate where young men are habitually taught that there is no such thing as originality and that nothing remains for us in this effete epoch of history but the mere recombining of thoughts which sprang first from the braver brains it is melancholy to see young men come forth from the college walls with less enthusiasm than they carried in trained in a spirit which is in this respect worse than english toryism that is does not even retain a hearty faith in the past it is better that a man should have eyes in the back of his head than that he should be taught to sneer at even a retrospective vision one may believe that the golden age is behind us or before us but alas for the forlorn wisdom of him who rejects it altogether it is not the climax of culture that a college graduate should emulate the obituary praise bestowed by cotton mather on the rev john mitchell of cambridge a truly aged young man better a thousand times train a boy on scott's novels or the border ballads than educate him to believe on the one side that chivalry was a cheat and the troubadours imbeciles and on the other hand that universal suffrage is an absurdity and the one real need is to get rid of our voters a great crisis like a civil war brings men temporarily to their senses and the young resume the attitude natural to their years in spite of their teachers but it is a sad thing when in seeking for the generous impulses of youth we have to turn from the public sentiment of the colleges to that of the workshops and the farms. It is a thing not to be forgotten that for a long series of years, the people of our northern states were habitually in advance of their institutions of learning, in courage and comprehensiveness of thought. There were long years during which the most cultivated scholar so soon as he embraced an unpopular opinion was apt to find the college doors closed against him and only the country lyceum the people's college left open slavery had to be abolished before the most accomplished orator of the nation could be invited to address the graduates of his own university the first among american scholars was nominated year after year only to be rejected before the academic societies of his own neighborhood yet during all that time the rural lecture associations showered their invitations on parker and phillips culture shunned them but the common people heard them gladly the home of real thought was outside not inside the college walls it hardly embarrassed a professor's position if he defended slavery as a divine institution but he risked his place if he denounced the wrong in those days if by any chance a man of bold opinions drifted into a reputable professorship we listened sadly to hear his voice grow faint he usually began to lose his faith his courage his toleration in short his americanism when he left the ranks of the uninstructed that time is past, and the literary class has now come more into sympathy with the popular heart. It is perhaps fortunate that there is as yet but little esprit de corps among our writers, so that they receive their best sympathy not from each other but from the people. Even the memory of our most original authors, as Thoreau or Margaret Fuller O'Souly, is apt to receive its sharpest stabs from those of the same guild when we american writers find grace to do our best it is not so much because we are sustained by each other as that we are conscious of a deep popular heart slowly but surely answering back to ours and offering a worthier stimulus than the applause of a coterie if we once lose faith in our audience the muse grows silent Even the apparent indifference of this audience to culture and high finish may be, in the end, a wholesome influence, recalling us to those more important things, compared to which these are secondary qualities. The indifference is only comparative. Our public prefers good writing as it prefers good elocution, but it values energy, heartiness, and action more. The public is right. It is the business of the writer as of the speaker to perfect the finer graces without sacrificing things more vital. She was not a good singer, says some novelist of his heroine, but she sang with an inspiration such as good singers rarely indulge in. Given those positive qualities, and I think that a fine execution does not hinder acceptance in America, but rather aids it where there is beauty of execution alone a popular audience even in america very easily goes to sleep and in such matters as the french actor samson said to the young dramatist sleep is an opinion it takes more than grammars and dictionaries to make a literature it is the spirit in which we act that is the great matter goethe says der geist aus dem wir ist das hochste technical training may give the negative merits of style as an elocutionist may help a public speaker by ridding him of tricks but the positive force of writing or of speech must come from positive sources ardor, energy depth of feeling or of thought no instruction ever gave these only the inspiration of a great soul a great need or a great people we all know that a vast deal of oxygen may go into the style of a man we see in it not merely what books he has read what company he has kept but also the food he eats the exercise he takes the air he breathes and so there is oxygen in the collective literature of a nation and this vital element proceeds above all else from liberty for want of this wholesome oxygen the voice of victor hugo comes to us uncertain and spasmodic, as of one in an alien atmosphere where breath is pain for want of it the eloquent english tones that at first sounded so clear and bell-like now reach us only faint and muffled and lose their music day by day it is by the presence of this oxygen that american literature is to be made great We are lost if we permit this inspiration of our nation's life to sustain only the journalist and the stump speaker while we allow the colleges and the books to be choked with the dust of dead centuries and to pant for daily breath. Perhaps it may yet be found that the men who are contributing most to raise the tone of American literature are the men who have never yet written a book and have scarcely time to read one but by their heroic energy in other spheres are providing exemplars for what our books shall one day be the man who constructs a great mechanical work helps literature for he gives a model which shall one day inspire us to construct literary works as great i do not wish to be forever outdone by the carpet machinery of clinton or the grain elevators of chicago we have not yet arrived at our literature other things must come first we are busy with our railroads perfecting the vast alimentary canals by which the nation assimilates raw immigrants at the rate of half a million a year we are not yet producing we are digesting food now literary composition by and by shakespeare did not write hamlet at the dinner-table It is, of course, impossible to explain this to foreigners, and they still talk of convincing while we talk of dining. For one, I cannot dispense with the society which we call uncultivated. Democratic sympathies seem to be mainly a matter of vigor and health. It seems to be the first symptom of biliousness to think that only one's self and one's cousins are entitled to consideration and constitute the world every refined person is an aristocrat in his dyspeptic moments when hearty and well he demands a wider range of sympathy it is so tedious to live only in one circle and have only a genteel acquaintance mrs trench in her delightful letters complains of the society in dresden about the year eighteen hundred because of the impossibility without overstepping all bounds of social custom of associated with any but noblesse we order that matter otherwise in america i wish not only to know my neighbor the man of fashion who strolls to his club at noon but also my neighbor the wheelwright who goes to his dinner at the same hour one would not wish to be unacquainted with the fair maiden who drives by in her basket wagon in the afternoon nor with the other fair maiden who may be seen at her wash-tub in the morning both are quite worth knowing both are good sensible dutiful girls the young laundress is the better mathematician because she has gone through the grammar school but the other has the better french accent because she has spent half her life in paris they offer a variety at least and save from that monotony which besets any set of people when seen alone there was much reason in horace walpole's coachman who having driven the maids of honor all his life bequeathed his earnings to his son on condition that he should never marry a maid of honor i affirm that democratic society the society of the future enriches and does not impoverish human life and gives more not less material for literary art distributing culture through all classes it diminishes class distinction and develops individuality perhaps it is the best phenomenon of american life thus far that the word gentleman which in england still designates a social order is here more apt to refer to personal character when we describe a person as a gentleman we usually refer to his manners morals and education not to his property or birth and this change alone is worth transplantation across the atlantic the use of the word lady is yet more comprehensive and therefore more honorable still we sometimes see in a shopkeeper's advertisement
1: saleslady
0: wanted no doubt the mere fashionable novelist loses terribly by the change when all classes may wear the same dress-coat what is left for him but he who aims to depict passion and character gains in proportion his material is increased tenfold the living realities of american life ought to come in among the tiresome lay figures of average english fiction like stephen lawrence into the london drawing-room tragedy must resume its grander shape and no longer turn on the vexed question whether the daughter of this or that matchmaker shall marry the baronet it is the characteristic of a real book that though the scene be laid in courts their whole machinery might be struck out and the essential interest of the plot remain the same in our box on the heights for instance the social heights might be abolished and the moral elevation would be enough the play of human emotion is a thing so absorbing that the petty distinctions of cottage and castle become as nothing in its presence why not waive these small matters in advance then and go straight to the real thing the greatest transatlantic successes which american novelists have yet attained those won by cooper and mrs stowe have come through a daring americanism of subject which introduced in each case a new figure to the european world first the indian then the negro whatever the merit of the work it was plainly the theme which conquered such successes are not easily to be repeated for they were based on temporary situations never to recur but they prepare the way for higher triumphs to be won by a profounder treatment. The introduction into literature, not of new tribes alone, but of the American spirit, to analyze combinations of character that only our national life produces, to portray dramatic situations that belong to a clearer social atmosphere. This is the higher Americanism. Of course to cope with such themes in such a spirit is less easy than to describe a foray or a tournament or to multiply indefinitely such still-life pictures as the stereotyped english or french society affords but the thing when once done is incomparably nobler it may be centuries before it is done no matter It will be done, and with it will come a similar advance along the whole line of literary labor, like the elevation which we have seen in the whole quality of scientific work in this country within the last twenty years. We talk idly about the tyranny of the ancient classics, as if there were some special peril about it, quite distinct from all other tyrannies but if a man is to be stunted by the influence of a master it makes no difference whether that master lived before or since the christian epoch one folio volume is as ponderous as another if it crushes down the tender germs of thought there is no great choice between the volumes of the encyclopedia It is not important to know whether a man reads Homer or Dante. The essential point is whether he believes the world to be young or old, whether he sees as much scope for his own inspiration as if never a book had appeared in the world. So long as he does this, he has the American spirit. No books, no travel can overwhelm him, for these will only enlarge his thoughts and raise his standard of execution. When he loses this faith, he takes rank among the copyists and the secondary, and no accident can raise him to a place among the benefactors of mankind. He is like a man who is frightened in battle. You cannot exactly blame him, for it may be an affair of the temperament or of the digestion, but you are glad to let him drop to the rear and to close up the ranks. Fields are won by those who believe in the winning. From Americanism in Literature, copyright 1871, by James R. Osgood and Company. Thackeray in America, by George William Curtis. Mr. Thackeray's visit at least demonstrates that if we are unwilling to pay English authors for their books, we are ready to reward them handsomely for the opportunity of seeing and hearing them. If Mr. Dickens, instead of dining at other people's expense and making speeches at his own, when he came to see us, had devoted an evening or two in the week to lecturing, his purse would have been fuller his feelings sweeter and his fame fairer it was a quixotic crusade that of the copyright and the excellent don has never forgiven the windmill that broke his spear undoubtedly when it was ascertained that mr thackeray was coming the public feeling on this side of the sea was very much divided as to his probable reception he'll come and humbug us eat our dinners, pocket our money, and go home and abuse us like that unmitigated snob Dickens, said Jonathan, chafing with the remembrance of that grand ball at the park theatre and the Baz tableau and the universal whining and dining to which the distinguished Dickens was subject while he was our guest. Let him have his say, said others, and we will have our look we will pay a dollar to hear him if we can see him at the same time and as for the abuse why it takes even more than two such cubs of the roaring british lion to frighten the american eagle let him come and give him fair play he did come and had fair play and returned to england with a comfortable pot of gold holding twelve thousand dollars and with the hope and promise of seeing us again in september to discourse of something not less entertaining than the witty men and sparkling times of anne We think there was no disappointment with his lectures. Those who knew his books found the author in the lecturer. Those who did not know his books were charmed in the lecturer by what is charming in the author, the unaffected humanity, the tenderness, the sweetness, the genial play of fancy, and the sad touch of truth, with that glancing stroke of satire which, lightning-like, illumines while it withers. The lectures were even more delightful than the books, because the tone of the voice and the appearance of the man, the general personal magnetism, explained and alleviated so much that would otherwise have seemed doubtful or unfair. For those who had long felt in the writings of Thackeray a reality quite inexpressible, there was a sacred delight in finding it justified in his speaking, for he speaks as he writes— simply directly without flourish without any cant of oratory commending what he says by its intrinsic sense and the sympathetic and humane way in which it was spoken thackeray is the kind of stump orator that would have pleased carlyle he never thrusts himself between you and his thought if his conception of the time and his estimate of the men differ from your own you have at least no doubt what his view is nor how sincere and necessary it is to him mr thackeray considers swift a misanthrope he loves goldsmith and Steele and harry fielding he has no love for sterne great admiration for pope and alleviated admiration for attison how could it be otherwise how could thackeray not think swift a misanthrope and stern a factious sentimentalist he is a man of instincts not of thoughts he sees and feels he would be shakespeare's call-boy rather than dine with the dean of saint patrick's he would take a pot of ale with goldsmith rather than a glass of burgundy with the reverend mr stern and that simply because he is thackeray he would have done it as fielding would have done it because he values one genuine emotion above the most dazzling thought because he is in fine a bohemian a minion of the moon a great sweet generous heart we say this with more unction now that we have personal proof of it in his public and private intercourse while he was here the popular thackeray theory before his arrival was of a severe satirist who concealed scalpels in his sleeves and carried prose in his waistcoat pockets a wearer of masks a scoffer and sneerer and general infidel of all high aims and noble character certainly we are justified in saying that his presence among us quite corrected this idea we welcomed a friendly genial man not at all convinced that his speech is heaven's first law, but willing to be silent when there is nothing to say, who decidedly refused to be lionized, not by sulking, but by stepping off the pedestal and challenging the common sympathies of all he met. A man who, in view of the thirty-odd editions of Martin Farquhar Tupper, was willing to confess that every author should think small beer of himself, Indeed, he has this rare quality that his personal impression deepens in kind that of his writings. The quiet and comprehensive grasp of the fact and the intellectual impossibility of holding fast anything but the fact is as manifest in the essayist upon the wits as in the author of Henry Esmond and Vanity Fair. Shall we say that this is the sum of his power and the secret of his satire? it is not what might be nor what we or other persons of well-regulated minds might wish but it is the actual state of things that he sees and describes how then can we help what we call satire if he accepts mrs roden crawley's invitation and describe her party there was no more satire in it so far as he is concerned than in painting lilies white a full-length portrait of the fair lady beatrix too must needs show a gay and vivid figure superbly glittering across the vista of those stately days then should dab and tab the eminent critics step up and demand that her eyes be a pale blue and her stomacher higher around the neck do dab and tab expect to gather pears from peach trees or? because their theory of dendrology convinces them that an ideal fruit tree would supply any fruit desired upon application do they denounce the non pear-bearing peach tree in the columns of their valuable journal this is the drift of the fault found with thackeray he is not fenelon he is not dickens he is not scott he is not poetical he is not ideal he is not humane he is not tit he is not tat complain the eminent dabs and tabs of course he is not because he is thackeray a man who describes what he sees motives as well as appearances a man who believes that character is better than talent that there is a worldly weakness superior to worldly wisdom that dick steele may haunt the alehouse and be carried home muzzy and yet be a more commendable character than the reverend dean of st patrick's who has genius enough to illuminate a century but not sympathy enough to sweeten a drop of beer and he represents this in a way that makes us see it as he does and without exaggeration for surely nothing could be more simple than his story of the life of honest dick steele if he allotted to that gentleman a consideration disproportioned to the space he occupies in literary history it only showed the more strikingly how deeply the writer lecturer's sympathy was touched by steele's honest humanity an article in our april number complained that the tendency of his view of anne's times was to a social laxity which might be very exhilarating but was very dangerous that the lecturer's warm commendation of fermented drinks taken at a very early hour of the morning in tavern rooms and club houses was as deleterious to the moral health of enthusiastic young readers disposed to the literary life as the beverage itself to their physical health but this is not a charge to be brought against thackeray it is a quarrel with history and with the nature of literary life artists and authors have always been the good fellows of the world that mental organization which predisposes a man to the pursuit of literature and art is made up of talent combined with ardent social sympathy geniality and passion and leads him to taste every cup and try every experience there is certainly no essential necessity that this class should be a dissipated and disreputable class, but by their very susceptibility to enjoyment they will always be the pleasure lovers and the seekers, and here is the social compensation to the literary man for the surrender of those chances of fortune which men of other pursuits enjoy. If he makes less money, he makes more juice out of what he does make if he cannot drink burgundy he can quaff the nut-brown ale while the most brilliant wit the most salient fancy the sweetest sympathy the most genial culture shall sparkle at his board more radiantly than a silver service and give him the spirit of the tropics and the rhine whose fruits are on other tables the golden light that transfigures talent and illuminates the world and which we call genius is erratic and erotic and while in milton it is austere and in wordsworth cool and in southey methodical in shakespeare it is fervent with all the results of fervour in raphael lovely with all the excesses of love in dante moody with all the whims of caprice the old quarrel of lombard street with grub street is as profound as that of osiris and typho it is the difference of sympathy the marquis of westminster will take good care that no superfluous shilling escapes oliver goldsmith will still spend his last shilling upon a brave and unnecessary banquet to his friends whether this be a final act of human organization or not it is certainly a fact of history every man instinctively believes that shakespeare stole deer just as he disbelieves that lord mayor whittington ever told a lie and the secret of that instinct is the consciousness of the difference in organization knave i have the power to hang ye says somebody in one of beaumont and fletcher's plays and i do be hanged and scorn ye is the airy answer i had a pleasant hour the other evening said a friend to us over my cigar and a book what book was that a treatise conclusively proving the awful consequences of smoking de quincey came up to london and declared war upon opium but during a little amnesty in which he lapsed into his old elysium he wrote his best book depicting its horrors our readers will not imagine that we are advocating the claims of drunkenness nor defending social excess we are only recognizing a fact and stating an obvious tendency the most brilliant illustrations of every virtue are to be found in the literary guild as well as the saddest beacons of warning yet it will often occur that the last in talent and the first in excess of a picked company will be a man around whom sympathy most kindly lingers we love goldsmith more at the head of an ill-advised feast than johnson and his friends leaving it thoughtful and generous as their conduct was the heart despises prudence in the single-hearted regard we know that pity has a larger share yet it is not so much that pity which is commiseration for misfortune and deficiency as that which is recognition of a necessary worldly ignorance the literary class is the most innocent of all the contempt of practical men for the poets is based upon a consciousness that they are not bad enough for a bad world To a practical man nothing is so absurd as the lack of worldly shrewdness. The very complaint of the literary life that it does not amass wealth and live in palaces is the scorn of the practical man, for he cannot understand that intellectual opacity which prevents literary man from seeing the necessity of the different pecuniary condition it is clear enough to the publisher who lays up fifty thousand a year why the author ends the year in debt but the author is amazed that he who deals in ideas can only dine upon occasional chops while the man who merely binds and sells ideas sits down to perpetual sirloin if they should change places fortune would change with them the publisher turned author would still lay up his thousands. The publishing author would still directly lose thousands. It is simply because it is a matter of prudence, economy, and knowledge of the world. Thomas Hood made his $10,000 a year, but if he lived at the rate of 15000 he would hardly die rich. Mr. Jordan a gentleman who in his autobiography advises energetic youth to betake themselves to the highway rather than to literature was, we understand, in the receipt of an easy income and was a welcome guest in pleasant houses, but living in a careless, shiftless, extravagant way he was presently poor, and instead of giving his memoirs the motto Picavi and inditing a warning he dashes off a truculent defiance practical publishers and practical men of all sorts invest their earnings in michigan central or cincinnati and dayton instead in steady works and devoted days and reap a pleasant harvest of dividends our friends the authors invest in prime havanas rhinish in oyster suppers love and leisure and divide a heavy percentage of headache dyspepsia and debt this is as true a vision from another point as the one we have already taken if the literary life has the pleasures of freedom it also has its pains it may be willing to resign the queen's drawing-room with the illustrious galaxy of stars and garters for the chamber with a party nobler than the nobility the author's success is of a wholly different kind than that of the publisher and he is thoughtless who demands both mr rowe who sells sugar naturally complains that mr doe who sells molasses makes money more rapidly but mr tennyson who writes poems can hardly make the same complaint of mr moxon who publishes them as was very fairly shown in a number of the Westminster Review, when noticing Mr. Jordan's book. What we have said is strictly related to Mr. Thackeray's lectures, which discuss literature. All the men he commemorated were illustrations and exponents of the career of letters. They all, in various ways, showed the various phenomena of the temperament and when in treating of them the critic came to steal he found one who was one of the most striking illustrations of one of the most universal aspects of literary life the simple-hearted unsuspicious gay gallant and genial gentleman ready with his sword or his pen with a smile or a tear the fair representative of the social tendency of his life it seems to us that the thackeray theory, the conclusion that he is a man who loves to depict madness and has no sensibilities to the finer qualities of character, crumbled quite away before that lecture upon steele. We know that it was not considered the best. We know that many of the delighted audience were not sufficiently familiar with literary history fully to understand the position of the man in the lecturer's review but as a key to thackeray it was perhaps the most valuable of all we know a literature of no more gentle treatment we have not often encountered in men of the most rigorous and acknowledged virtue such humane tenderness we have not often heard from the most clerical lips words of such genuine christianity steele's was a character which makes weakness amiable it was a weakness if you will but it was certainly amiability and it was a combination more attractive than many full panoplied excellences it was not presented as a model captain steele in the tap-room was not painted as the ideal of virtuous manhood but it certainly was intimated that many admirable things were consonant with the free use of beer it was frankly stated that if in that character virtue abounded cakes and ale did much more abound captain richard Steele might have behaved much better than he did but we should then never have heard of him a few fine essays do not float a man into immortality but the generous character the heart sweet in all excesses and under all chances is a spectacle too beautiful and too rare to be easily forgotten a man is better than many books even a man who is not immaculate may have more virtuous influence than the discreetest saint let us remember how fondly the old painters lingered round the story of magdalen and thank thackeray for his full-length steel we conceive this to be the chief result of thackeray's visit that he convinced us of his intellectual integrity he showed us how impossible it is for him to see the world and describe it other than he does he does not profess cynicism nor satirize society with malice there is no man more humble none more simple his interests are human and concrete, not abstract. We have already said that he looks through and through at the fact. It is easy enough, and at some future time it will be done, to deduce the peculiarity of his writings from the character of his mind. There is no man who masks so little as he in assuming the author. His books are his observations reduced to writing it seems to us as singular to demand that dante should be like shakespeare as to quarrel with thackeray's want of what is called ideal portraiture even if you thought from reading his vanity fair that he had no conception of noble women certainly after the lecture upon swift after all the lectures in which every allusion to women was so manly and delicate and sympathetic you thought so no longer it is clear that his sympathy is attracted to women to that which is essentially womanly feminine qualities common to both sexes do not necessarily charm him because he finds them in women a certain degree of goodness must always be assumed it is only the rare flowering that inspires special praise you call amelia's fondness for george osborne foolish fond idolatry thackeray smiles as if all love were not idolatry of the fondest foolishness what was hero's what was francesca de rimini's what was juliet's they might have been more brilliant women than amelia and their idols of a larger mould than george but the love was the same old foolish fond idolatry passion of love and a profound and sensible knowledge regard based upon prodigious knowledge of character and appreciation of talent are different things what is the historic and poetic splendor of love but the very fact which constantly appears in thackeray's stories namely that it is a glory which dazzles and blinds men rarely love the women they ought to love "'according to the ideal standards. "'It is this that makes the plot and mystery of life. "'Is it not the perpetual surprise of all Jane's friends "'that she should love Timothy instead of Thomas? "'And is not the courtly and accomplished Thomas "'sure to surrender to some accidental Lucy "'without position, wealth, style, worth, culture, "'without anything but heart? "'This is the fact.' and it reappears in Thackeray, and it gives his books that air of reality which they possess beyond all modern story. And it is this single perception of the fact which, simple as it is, is the rarest intellectual quality that made his lectures so interesting. The sun rose again upon the vanished century, and lighted those historic streets the wits of queen anne ruled the hour and we were bidden to their feast much reading of history and memoirs had not so sent the blood into those old english cheeks and so moved those limbs in proper measure as these swift glances through the eyes of genius it was because true to himself thackeray gave us his impressions of those wits as men rather than authors for he loves character more than thought. He is a man of the world, and not a scholar. He interprets the author by the man. When you are made intimate with young Swift, Sir William Temple's saturnine secretary, you more intelligently appreciate the dean of St. Patrick's. When the surplus of Mr. Stern is raised a little, more is seen than the reverend gentleman intends. Hogarth, The bluff londoner necessarily depicts a bluff coarse obvious morality the hardy fielding the cool addison the genial goldsmith these are the figures that remain in memory and their works are valuable as they indicate the man mr thackeray's success was very great he did not visit the west nor canada he went home without seeing niagara falls but wherever he did go he found a generous and social welcome and a respectful and sympathetic hearing. He came to fulfill no mission, but he certainly knit more closely our sympathy with Englishmen. Heralded by various romantic memoirs, he smiled at them, stoutly asserted that he had been always able to command a good dinner and to pay for it nor did he seek to disguise that he hoped his american tour would help him to command and to pay for more he promised not to write a book about us but we hope he will for we can ill spare the criticism of such an observer at least we may be sure that the material gathered here will be worked up in some way he found that we were not savages nor bores he found that there was a hundred here for every score in england who knew well and loved the men of whom he spoke he found that the same red blood colors all the lips that speak the language he so nobly praised he found friends instead of critics he found those who loving the author loved the man more he found a quiet welcome from those who are waiting to welcome him again and as sincerely from literary and social essays by george william curtis copyright eighteen ninety four by harper and brothers our march to washington by theodore winthrop through the city at three o'clock in the afternoon of friday april nineteenth we took our peacemaker a neat twelve pound brass howitzer down from the seventh regiment army and stationed it in the rear of the building the twin peacemaker is somewhere near us but entirely hidden by this enormous crowd an enormous crowd of both sexes of every age and condition the men offer all kinds of truculent and patriotic hopes the women shed tears and say god bless you boys this is a part of the town where baddish cigars prevail but good or bad i am ordered to keep all away from the gun so the throng stands back peers curiously over the heads of its junior members and seems to be taking the measure of my coffin after a patient hour of this the word is given we fall in our two guns find their places at the right of the line of march and we move on through the thickening crowd at a great house on the left as we pass the astor library i see a handkerchief waving for me yes it is she who made the sandwiches in my knapsack they were a trifle too thick as i afterwards discovered but otherwise perfection be these my thanks and the thanks of hungry comrades who had bites of them at the corner of great jones street we halted for half an hour then everything ready we marched down broadway it was worth a life that march only one who passed as we did through that tempest of cheers two miles long can know the terrible enthusiasm of the occasion i could hardly hear the rattle of our own gun-carriages and only once or twice the music of our band came to me muffled and quelled by the uproar we knew now if we had not before divined it that our great city was with us as one man utterly united in the great cause we were marching to sustain this grand fact i learned by two senses if hundreds of thousands roar it into my ears thousands slapped it into my back my fellow-citizens smote me on the knapsack as i went by at the gun-rope and encouraged me each in his own dialect bully for you alternated with benedictions in the proportion of two bullies to one blessing i was not so fortunate as to receive more substantial tokens of sympathy but there were parting gifts showered on the regiment enough to establish a variety shop handkerchiefs of course came floating down upon us from the windows like a snow pretty little gloves pelted us with love taps the sterner sex forced upon us pocket knives new and jagged combs soap slippers boxes of matches cigars by the dozen and the hundred pipes to smoke shag and pipes to smoke fruit eggs and sandwiches one fellow got a new purse with ten bright quarter eagles at the corner of grand street or thereabouts a bahoy in red flannel shirt and black dress pantaloons leaning back against the crowd with herculean shoulders called me say bully take my dog he's one of the kind that holds till he's draps this gentleman with his animal was instantly shoved back by the police and the seventh lost the dog these were the comic incidents of the march but underlying all was the tragic sentiment that we might have tragic work presently to do the news of the rascal attack in baltimore on the massachusetts sixth had just come in ours might be the same chance if there were any of us not in earnest before the story of the day would steady us so we said good-bye to broadway moved down courtland street under a bower of flags and at half-past six shoved off in the ferry boat. everybody has heard how jersey city turned out and filled up the railroad station like an opera house to give godspeed to us as a representative body a guarantee of the unquestioning loyalty of the conservative class in new york everybody has heard how the state of new jersey along the railroad line stood through the evening and the night to shout their quota of good wishes at every station the jerseymen were there uproarious as jerseymen to shake our hands and wish us a happy dispatch i think i did not see a rod of ground without its man from dusk till dawn from the hudson to the delaware upon the train we made a jolly night of it all knew that The more a man sings, the better he is likely to fight. So we sang more than we slept, and, in fact, that has been our history ever since. Philadelphia At sunrise we were at the station in Philadelphia and dismissed for an hour. Some hundreds of us made up Broad Street for the LaPierre house to breakfast when i arrived i found every place at table filled and every waiter ten deep with orders so being an old campaigner i followed up the stream of provenda to the fountainhead the kitchen half a dozen other old campaigners were already there most hospitably entertained by the cooks they served us hot and hot with the best of their best straight from the gridiron and the pan i hope if I live to breakfast again at the LaPierre house, that I may be allowed to help myself and choose for myself below stairs. When we rendezvoused at the train, we found that the orders were for every man to provide himself three days' rations in the neighborhood and be ready for a start at a moment's notice. A mountain of bread was already piled up in the station. I stuck my bayonet through a stout loaf and— with a dozen comrades armed in the same way went foraging about for other weavers. it is a poor part of philadelphia but whatever they had in the shops or the houses seemed to be at our disposition i stopped at a corner shop to ask for pork and was amicably assailed by an earnest dame irish i am pleased to say she thrust her last loaf upon me and sighed that it was not baked that morning for my honour's service a little further on two kindly quaker ladies compelled me to step in what could they do they asked eagerly they had no meat in the house but could we eat eggs they had in the house a dozen and a half new laid so the pot to the fire and the eggs boiled and bagged by myself and that tall saxon my friend e of the sixth company while the eggs simmered the two ladies the us prayerfully and tearfully hoping that god would save our country from blood unless blood must be shed to preserve law and liberty nothing definite from baltimore when we returned to the station we stood by waiting orders about noon the eighth massachusetts regiment took the train southward our regiment was ready to a man to try its strength with the plug uglies if there had been any voting on the subject the plan to follow the straight road to washington would have been accepted by acclamation But the higher powers deemed that the longest way round was the shortest way home, and no doubt their decision was wise. The event proved it. At two o'clock came the word to fall in. We handled our howitzers again and marched down Jefferson Avenue to the steamer Boston to embark. To embark for what port? For Washington, of course, finally. But by what route? That was to remain in doubt to us privates for a day or two the boston is a steamer of the outside line from philadelphia to new york she just held our legion we tramped on board and were allotted about the craft from the top to the bottom story we took tents traps and grub on board and steamed away down the delaware in the sweet afternoon of april if ever the heavens smiled fair weather on any campaign they have done so on ours the boston soldiers on shipboard are proverbially fish out of water we could not be called by the good old nickname of lobsters by the crew our gray jackets saved the sobriquet but we floundered about the crowded vessel like boiling victims in a pot at last we found our places and laid ourselves about the decks to tan or bronze or burn scarlet according to complexion there were plenty of cheeks of lobster you before next evening on the boston a thousand young fellows turned loose on shipboard were sure to make themselves merry let the reader imagine that we were like any other excursionists except that the stacks of bright guns were always present to remind us of our errand and regular guard mounting and drill went on all the time the young citizens growled or laughed at the minor hardships of the hasty outfit and toughened rapidly to business sunday the twenty first was a long and somewhat anxious day while we were bowling along in the sweet sunshine and sweeter moonlight of the halcyon time uncle sam might be dethroned by somebody in blackrum or baltimore burnt by the boys from lynn or marblehead revenging the massacre of their fellows every one begins to comprehend the fiery eagerness of men who live in historic times i wish i had control of chain lightning for a few minutes says O, the droll fellow of our company i'd make it come thick and heavy and knock spots out of secession at early dawn of monday the twenty-second after feeling along slowly all night we see the harbor of annapolis a frigate with sails unbent lies at anchor she flies the stars and stripes Hurrah. A large steamboat is aground farther in. As soon as we can see anything, we catch the glitter of bayonets on board. By and by boats come off, and we get news that the steamer is the Maryland, a ferry boat of the Philadelphia and Baltimore Railroad. The Massachusetts 8th Regiment had been just in time to seize her on the north side of the Chesapeake they learned that she was to be carried off by the crew and leave them blockaded so they shot their zoves ahead as skirmishers the fine fellows rattled on board and before the steamboat had time to take a turn or open a valve she was held by massachusetts in trust for uncle sam hurrah for the most important prize thus far in the war it probably saved the constitution old ironsides from capture by the traders it probably saved annapolis and kept maryland opened without bloodshed End of section ten